Hello and welcome to the OCR Exams podcast, where we'll be chatting with a range of guest speakers from the world of education. My name's Anthony, I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. Here at OCR, we're committed to supporting teachers and exams officers at every step of their journey with us. We're also here to help our students reach their full potential, and some of our podcasts will feature tips and advice on revising, preparing for exams, and managing mental health. Please remember to like, comment on and subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you're using and be sure to follow our other social media channels. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube and Instagram. Just search for OCR exams. You can also find a range of subject specific blogs on our website, ocr.org.uk forward slash blog. So let's get started with today's episode. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the OCR podcast. My name's Kate Thompson and I'm a subject advisor for sport here at OCR. Hi Kate, this is Mark Johnson. I'm also a subject advisor here at OCR. So today we'll be chatting to our guests about nutrition, eating routines, diet and sports performance. So let me welcome and introduce our guest, Dr. Chris McLeod from Loughborough University. Chris is an academic and chartered psychologist with an expertise in eating behaviour and public health. Hi Chris, thanks for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself to our guests? Yes, thanks very much Kate. It's it's wonderful to be here. Um, You've given me a little bit of an introduction of who I I am, Um, but just to go a little bit uh, further. Yeah, so um, as sort of a behavioural nutritionist, so I, I, I look at what foods People eat, people eat in, in what portion sizes and understand how sort of the psychology of eating influences people's eating behaviour and, and their overall their health. Um, so I, I've done um, a lot of um, laboratory based research um, in, in the field of psychology uh, and, and nutrition but then I look to try and translate that um, experimental laboratory research into real world public health interventions um, and so yeah that's that's a little bit about um, what, what I do and, and I do that at Loughborough University and I, yeah I'm very grateful to be on the podcast today. I think it's a bit of a hot topic at the moment you know new year everyone wants to try and get themselves back into shape so on that note shall we get started so the first sort of question that we would like you to dive into is how does our diet affect our daily life well, it's, it's, a, it's a really big question and one that I think is actually really quite easy to answer on one level. I think we can all answer it. Uh, and that's the great thing about food. And that's why I love uh, the area of nutrition and, and eating behavior is, is because we, we all eat. Uh, and so we all have experiences multiple times a day of, of foods, of different foods. And we have a, a lifetime of experience as well. Um, so on one level, I think everyone can understand like how it might affect us on, on, on a daily basis, even on an hourly basis. But going to a little bit more uh, depth uh, of, for the question, um, food is, is fundamental for uh, our survival. Um, food is, is, is our fuel. Um, food has, contains lots of nutrients, uh, macronutrients, micronutrients, um, it contains non-nutritive substances as well at points. Um, and I think one thing which is quite key to, to highlight is that um, a, a, a single food um, for most people doesn't consist their whole diet. Their whole diet is a mix of various different foods in different combinations that are consumed across uh, with, with various sort of frequency across their diet as well. Um, so we have a, such a variety of nutrients that we would consume and, and that variety is, is really important to us because it, it does affect how we, how we um, act, how we, how we think, how we behave, um, our emotions, um, how we recover if we're thinking on a sporting level. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really key at that sort of a, a level. But then food isn't just fuel. Um, you can think about food as feeling as well you can think about it as a quite a functional emotional emotive tool you know we we 
I always think about ice creams. It's a really great example because I love an ice cream. Um, and you can think, you know, I have an ice cream sometimes on a hot day to cool myself down. I may have an ice cream uh, to celebrate uh, a success. I may have an ice cream because I'm not feeling too great. I may have an ice cream when I'm not even hungry. It's just dessert and that's just what happens. I may have an ice cream to share love between someone or I could have it. Yeah, that I'm absolutely ravenous and I just need to shove an ice cream <laughs> down my throat. Um, but there's so many different um roles that food plays in in our lives as well that can that can affect us and it's this continual sort of ebb and flow uh this balance of all these characteristics in relation to a food that affects us in each moment um and then you, you can also think on the other side not just how our diet affects our daily life but then how our daily life affects our diet and there's so much complexity in relation to the foods and the combination of those and then how our daily lives are set up and how that interacts with the foods that we have and the availability of the foods that we have around us so yeah it's uh, it does affect us quite a bit in many different ways yeah and i think at the moment a lot of people are feeling a little a little bit low you know there's there's colds and quite a few going around and at that point you know i know i do crave chocolate or or something sweet and I don't know whether it's a comfort thing but like you say throughout our daily lives we food sort of influences us I suppose yeah very very much so and there are different reasons as to why we might go to specific foods in specific situations so there's definitely a part of it that is quite heavily inbuilt uh, we can think about it from a from a genetic position um when a when a when a baby is is first born um it's um facial reactions to specific nutrients that it might consume are completely in, involuntary um but whether you have sort of some some sugar that you put on put on a little finger and put put to their mouth or a more bitter substance they all respond in that way so that we we are quite hardwired in many respects um in in regards to going towards a nutrient and that's both macronutrients the mm -hmm. carbohydrates the proteins the fats but then also there's a research you know more recently looking at the fact that we have a there's a potential that we have a drive towards particular micronutrients as well and we look to get a combination of all those micronutrients which manifests in us having a particular diet but then also we've got the longer term learnt behaviors that come in as well so not just the genetics not just the more biological or inbuilt systems that we have but thinking about how we were fed as a child you know what yeah. were the feeding practices that our parents engaged in to initially offer us food and then to offer us uh, treats or or to help us if we're feeling sad and then those learnt behaviors over a long period of time also get very heavily ingrained and, and difficult to sort of budge so yeah there's, there's different reasons again as to why you might go towards towards certain foods at certain times so what when you were saying that you know the way your parents feed you as a baby can have long-term effects on your food choices um what conditions can be sort of helped or can occur because of our diet? Um, most diseases or or even most uh, good health can be caused uh, or can can be affected by the food that we have, both in sort of an acute and, and long term form. So if we if I think about the um, vegetables are very, are very good for our health you know they've got loads of micronutrients in them they're quite low in energy density so they they haven't got much energy in them which can be helpful to be uh, helpful for us to be filling but then not provide uh, a significant amount of uh, energy within them um but they also tend to be not the most liked foods ever in the world especially for young children if anyone who has children uh, listening I'm sure you can reflect on yeah. offering vegetables maybe the first time they had broccoli or something like that and uh, or Brussels sprouts or Brussels sprouts cabbage or <laughs> whatever it might be um and 
the way that you might introduce vegetables and the frequency that which in, in which you do that will affect whether they like vegetables or how soon that they like vegetables. Um, so uh, there was a, a, a great uh, study by uh, Julie Manella and, and colleagues some decades ago, which looked at if a uh, pregnant mother was uh, uh, drank some carrot juice while she was pregnant, um, a group who did that versus not having carrot juice when she was pregnant. Um, the group whose mother had had the carrot juice, uh, the child was more likely to like the flavour of carrots six months after birth than a group that hadn't had carrots uh, in, when, they, when, when they were in the womb. So all the way from that point and potentially even before that, uh, you get the influence of how diet will uh, sorry, that how the diet of, of the mother and the parental feeding practices can influence what foods you choose. The earlier you get in these beneficial nutrients, it, the, the, the better your likelihood is that you are in a healthful or optimal health state. Um, and that can then have a knock on to all of the you know, potential consequences to that. I mean, obviously, you know, kids also just decide all of a sudden, no, I don't like peas, not eating them, but I'll eat carrots. I never liked them before, but I'll eat them now. So, yeah. um, I can I can draw out from personal experience, Gary, what you were just saying, Chris, about uh, things that mothers eat when they're pregnant. I mean, my my older one braves strawberries and ice cream all the time. The youngest one's a complete chocolate addict. Um, the youngest one's just suddenly decided he loves Brussels sprouts. Um, but then on the flip side, it was interesting what you were saying because I know that my mother craved cheese onion crisps and was eating about six or seven packets a day. From childhood, I hate the smell of cheese and crisps. I cannot stomach them at all. They are my nemesis. So just kind of go against a little bit against some of your research there. Um, yeah. that I think sometimes that parents can go a little bit too far with what they crave or mothers can go too far with what they crave and actually turn the kids off of those uh, those flavours at times as well. So personal experience, I think, of that one, though. Definitely. It's um, what's really difficult is looking at an individual or hearing an individual's food preferences and the story through their particular lens and trying to work out in the present day when you haven't done a controlled trial your whole life, how all of the interacting factors around your life, everything from your genes, your the lifestyle that you had, the environment, parents, school, caregivers all of those sorts of things how they have interacted to form your preferences and your choices today because it it could be that there was a another related life event which meant that you you know from from a young age hated cheese and onion crisps yeah. it might be a, a a reason which is a little bit more based on you know the the the, the pregnancy period but yeah. it's really difficult to work that out and that's why we we do try to do as controlled a studies as we can to at least go well this is a potential reason and so this might be how we how you can help yourself change your behaviors around it you know you're talking about sort of changing behaviors and people learning to eat different foods to help their 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 bodies their health what about supplements is that something that you advocates mm. or just try and avoid yeah it's a really really good question um so supplements can be helpful for preventing or treating diseases especially um so for example i'm doing some uh, research at the moment looking at um i don't know if you know of these oral nutritional supplements that are like um other brands are available, but Fortisip or Complan, uh, as are examples of them, sort of very low volume, high energy dense, high the sort of nutrient content drinks. Um, and they tend to be given to vulnerable populations when we can't get enough uh, energy into them for whatever reason. Um, and I'm doing some work at the moment to see if we can optimize the delivery of that supplement to older adults who are in, in a vulnerable position because at the moment the adherence to these um, all nutritional supplements when they're given to for example in my uh, the cohort I'm looking at vulnerable older adults is it, the, the adherence is quite low people don't really comply with what they're asked to do mm. and I'm looking at to see how we can improve that um, because um, I, if you have a product it can do exactly what you want on the tin but the uh, effective public health researcher would say, but if the person isn't having it, 
then it is not a helpful supplement at all. So in that way, I can say, yeah, I'm doing some research with a supplement and I believe that they have their place. Um, if we think about it in terms of sports performance, they, they can also be helpful to achieve optimum sports performance, but uh, mostly for really quite elite athletes there's there's a lot more that you can do as an athlete uh in especially in the sort of the amateur field to to improve your performance before you look to get that extra one percent that having a, maybe a, a particular off-the-shelf sports supplement some of them are very effective um caffeine is one of the most potent ergogenic aids out there to help but other ones will just give that tiny extra percentage and, and won't be um, 100% necessary. And, and that's the thing I think is really key for, for me with supplements is that, yes, they can prevent, help prevent certain diseases. Yes, they can help treat certain deficiencies as well, like a vitamin deficiency, or yes, it can help with sports performance. But for all groups, it should be food first. Um, right. a, a good diet for, for most people balanced in the way that's helpful for for them and their specific moment that will provide the best opportunity for optimal health and supplements should be uh secondary if at all so would you include in the supplements things like the protein shakes that you see the the athletes taking you know i remember being in school and it was the thing to have at break time you'd see the boys walking around with the shakers <laughs> rattle 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 i'm like why are you drinking that well, I want to build muscle mass. Yeah, well, that's not really going to help. So is, is that the sort of supplements that you're saying in, in the vulnerable group that, you know, it, it's good for them to try and increase their, 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 their calorie intake, their nutrition intake? Yes, uh, I, it's exactly that. That That's sort of an example where, so in older adults, there's various stuff, different physiological and psychological and psychosocial changes to their yeah. life which means they find it difficult to to eat as much protein as they need it can be everything from chewing and swallowing to not going out and eating with people as much and so not having the role modeling about how much people eat and you know to to reflect other people who are eating uh, some, yeah. you know, chicken breast or whatever it is um so for them delivery via a liquid to yeah. get that protein in when we're trying to prevent their sarcopenia their lack their reduction in muscle mass and function is really uh, important and probably quite a good intervention but for for um amateur uh but keen athletes yeah um the benefits that you can get from a protein shake are very similar to other foods uh, so from food itself from from high protein sources but just a pint of milk uh is a very effective uh um, substitute for protein shake and and i think that's a really key message because protein supplements and protein shakes let's just say because i i took them as well when i was younger um but they are a for a particular group tend to be people who are in more higher socioeconomic positions um and are involved in a in a society in their local society and structure where that is a a normal uh, concept or an idea or an option many many people out there a protein shake just wouldn't be possible or it wouldn't come yeah. into their 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 sort of their their options so saying you know no milk milk will be is a very good substitute for that yeah. um but then again also you know if you are going to have it um no not, not even withstanding that the key thing about a protein shake or the protein ingestion that comes from the protein shake is actually just about the quantity the amount of protein that someone consumes for their size uh for their age for yeah. their level of physical activity um per day and it's much more important to think about it over the course of a day protein content than the really specific timing unless you are that one percent elite athlete that it really yeah. really matters so so what what would you describe as being a, a good eating routine for for your everyday person that's not training and your active we could do three groups, couldn't we? We could do your everyday person, fairly sedentary, to your exercising, you know, 
three to five times a week to your elite athletes? What's what's the the sort of eating routines that they would consider? It's a really uh, really tough question to uh, to is. answer. It's, it's uh, very big. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very big. So I can either go very general because then the opposite of that is each person has their own routine at that, that specific day at that specific time in their life for their for a specific reason yeah. that would help them but overall for, for for most people um regularity but variety is right. really uh, sort of a key message so our body does fascinating things uh, sort of um sort of biologically speaking um when it learns when we're when we're used to eating foods so i don't know if anyone has that situation where they always have let's say a snack at 11 11 a.m always have a banana whatever it is and if you haven't been looking at the clock it can get to about 10 past 11 and your stomach might rumble and you then look at the clock and go oh yeah it's 11 o'clock the body learns and then the biology sort of follows that learning process to expect foods at particular times and it gets it ready for digestion before you've even eaten it. So insulin, once it, the body's learned um, what foods tend to come at what times and the, the period between eating, instead of insulin being secreted after eating, which is primarily you know what happens, it starts to secrete it before you actually eat in preparation for it because we have this really odd it's called the paradox of eating which Stephen Woods put out in in about the early 90s where we need to eat for survival but eating is an absolute catastrophe metabolically for the body it just at that time it sort of throws everything uh, all all sort of um, all systems go because it thinks this is in these I don't know what's happening here how much is coming in is this good for the blood blood sugar levels should I I should take this out where do I need to store it what what does this affect in my hormones it massively changes so much um about our you know biology and and physiology at that time of ingestion so yeah it's a it's a it's a fascinating um uh situation that regularity can can help with that process of the Mm. sort of that catastrophe because the body sort of starts to know and prepare and it becomes less impactful to have whatever it might be but if you have a massive bowl of pasta (laughs) which might not be the best thing to have all the time for every single person in every situation but if you were to have that with regularity the impact of that bowl of pasta would likely reduce in terms of maybe the lethargy that you that you experience after it if you had it with regularity likely so because the body would prepare for it so that regularity is 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 quite important and then also the variety of as well as i talked about earlier with the different nutrients macronutrient micronutrients that we have to to ensure we're as as optimized for our health and and performance as possible i mean i think teachers definitely i know i'm guilty of it routine the bell goes at break time i want to eat yeah. and e- even now half past yeah. 10 11 I'm, o'clock i'm getting a bit antsy yeah. it's break time yeah. i want food yeah yeah my colleagues used to claim when i was teaching used to claim that they would know when i hadn't had my ribena and boost bar at a 20 past 10 break because i'd be ratty by the time we got into the office at lunchtime so, so yeah. healthy mark <laughs> everything moderation uh, yeah. no, it, and <laughs> it, it is it is true though that 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 is you you given a great example of of that in reality and and, and yeah. that is actually uh, a response to learning and our biological systems coming into play and the um uh the really difficult thing for many people to hear is that in our body for a sort of seventy five kilogram um person um who is who hasn't got significant overweight and and isn't significantly underweight they've got about a month or more's worth of energy stored in their body that can be used for fuel um so the need to eat need in relation to uh, absolute survival um is quite low when you haven't eaten for a few hours but when someone needs food in a in a given moment, if they're not used to not having that at that time, that does not mean that they don't need 
at the more acute level food in that given moment. It doesn't mean that that person could never, I'm going to use a double negative, could never not eat at that time. As in, there's a possibility that if you eat every day at 11 a.m., you could unlearn that. But you couldn't do it immediately without a little bit of uh, uncertainty if you are really um, set into that routine. But it would take a few days for the body to relearn that, oh, you don't need to eat it at that time. You, you survived yesterday. So, oh, OK, I don't have to be as as worried and send off all these signals yeah. that, that I'm telling you that you might not survive if you don't eat at, at this specific time each day. But, yeah, in the given moment, that person might still, you know, they will need to, to eat to, to that level anyway. Yeah. I just had this thought of Pavlov's dogs salivating while you're talking about that. <laughs> so how does how does our diet and our nutrition help with recovery after sport? Uh, well, they nutrients, they're the carbohydrates, the proteins, the fats. Um, I'll leave alcohol as another type of nutrient for the moment. Uh, I'll leave other people's imagination as to what that might do. But um, all nutrients all those nutrients have varying different, um, varying roles. Um, carbohydrates is a uh, main energy provider. Protein tends to, uh, to repair and recover the cells in our body. And then fats can be used also for energy, but also a storage for insulation and, and other roles as well. So getting the balance of those is really important for, for recovery. And a a key thing here is it depends on what recovery means over what period of time after what activity um how how strenuous an activity how strenuous an activity for that person and what they experience yeah um so you know nutrients we should have them in particular amounts depending on the age as i say musculature physical activity levels um, but again, timing is another really interesting one with um, nutrition and, and recovery. So overall, as I said, for the likes of protein, it, it seems that sort of the quantity over the recovery period is 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 most important for for most people. But for for example, on another example, another example, um, carbohydrate delivery within sport. So if you're at half time in the middle of a football match. And your timing and the amount of the timing of that carbohydrate ingestion and, and liquid um, is likely to be very crucial for your success because it is a very um, it, it is a, the impact of the of ingesting that carbohydrate and the liquid and probably some sodium as well will have a, an acute positive effect on that performance. Whereas for something more like protein for for most people, and as I say, it's about a quantity over a longer period of of time um but the amount that you have as i said will depend on what you're doing who you are what your sport yeah. is and, and what you've done yeah i know yeah. there's been some some rumors flying around where, where a couple of the premiership football teams that they've been sort of feigning an injury 25 minutes into the first half to get some energy gels onto the pitch to players interesting uh, quite interesting yeah. yeah it is interesting well i, I mean i do think that uh we, always with sport as with life we should think about what we have as structures that that are traditional let's say that are beneficial and what of the endless possibilities that are outside of that current traditional structure might be beneficial to to go towards so i think optimizing performance by allowing um energy drink ingestion for elite athletes during a match seems a fair question to think about how we could put that in you know we see it with marathon runners and with the table stations and being able to have mm-hmm. that but then you can go to the further extreme on that and say well should should sports people have uh those those camel packs that you can put on the back where yeah. your liquid is literally on you all the time and you have a little yeah. a tube that goes to your mouth that you can access at any point another possibility who knows probably not helpful for rugby but it could be possible <laughs> possible for for another sport but then you have to offset the potential that you're then carrying more weight on your body and how that would affect your performance but um yeah i i think that we've got a, a, a whole load of potential options to continue to optimize sports and uh, we should keep thinking about that because we don't want people failing injuries we don't want people having to put dishonesty first in order to 
and try and get what they need at that point. So, yeah, I think we should think about that more. I mean, you see it in the, the tennis, don't you, that they go off <clears throat> Novak Djokovic with his dates. You know, they eat a mouthful yeah. of banana. <clears throat> How do you just have to stop at a mouthful? Just carry on and eat the whole thing? But, you know, they, they have that. But, but then you, on the other extreme, you've got like your Formula One drivers who sit in a car for two hours, three hours, and what do they have? Liquid. That's Experience it. Experiencing massive G-forces on yeah. the body as well, which is extremely fatiguing. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, the, the, there's so many different ways that nutrients play a role and how we take those on and when we take them on for our performance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting topic. Yeah, well, I think because also you, you think about the type of, sport the differences that you need a marathon runner versus a high jumper versus mm. uh, a swimmer versus a shot putter you know and that's just within the sort of athletic athletics realm and a high jumper will want to be as light as possible for the most for the maximal force basically so that they don't they're not lifting as much to go over the yeah. bar and so i worked with uh, high jumpers in, in the past um to optimize their diet and and Whilst for most of the time, we would recommend, as with all other people, that a high fibre diet is very good for for their health. It's it's filling as well. Um, but before an event, uh, you would recommend reducing your fibre content so that there's, uh, I'll put it gently, but nothing sort of stuck and remaining in your system uh, when you're about to form because yeah. you don't want that extra weight and when yeah. you have you know certain nutrients as well it's more likely to retain water in your in your cells which again makes you heavier so there's yeah. there's whereas other other sports actually that's actually a beneficial thing to have you know more carbohydrates in you more glycogen in the muscles and more, more yeah. liquid as well so yeah it really does depend on it, the sport it, as well it, it keeps going so in terms of the examples you've just given the the rugby player and the the shot putter or sorry the swimmer and the shot putter and the the high jumper their their dietary requirements are going to be very different aren't they in terms of the type of meal the lightness of the meal the, the protein fiber carbohydrate ratios they're going to be very different aren't they yeah, very different. And in energy content as well. And sometimes also the frequency in which they, they eat as well. And, and um, yeah. And then when you get competitions, uh, because they, they can, you know, an athlete can have their regular pattern based on when they know they train mm -hmm. and you can eat around that. But the novel environment, the novel context that's provided by uh, match day in a different in, in, away location or when you're going to a, a championship um, abroad, even especially where mm. you're not quite sure where the let's say the athlete village is, is going to be, yeah. you don't know where you're, it's going to be in relation to the, the, um, the, the food area, uh, what foods are going to be on offer, when you're going to when you're going to compete, how many times yeah. you're going to compete. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, and I see it with, you know, with, with um, you gave Novak Djokovic, Djokovic as an example, but tennis uh, tournaments where they can play any time from 11 a.m. Uh, the next day to starting at 10 p.m. that night mm -hmm. and the match going into 4 a.m. or whatever it would yeah. be. It's very, very difficult for their, their recovery, both for nutrition, for, you know, the, the physiological cool downs that they would do and for their sleep as yeah. well. You know, and Andy Murray did vocalise that this year, didn't he, in the in the tennis, the Australian Open. I mean, it's a fair point. You know, you've got these ball boys and girls that are now at 4am. They've been on the court for four hours and what thoughts being given to them. How would you how would you like to see the students today being educated about their food and about their eating patterns and eating habits? So. Uh from an early age, um, it would be really good if schools, um, so that it doesn't rely on on parents, for example, and, and the access that they might have. But if if schools could engage children with food from an early age, and and that's everything from having it at, offered at, at lunch in, in variety of foods, um, to 
having school gardens where they may grow some food and children can go out and see how food is is grown. We had some research at Loughborough University looking looking at, at that um, and that has a great impact on, on the children and then the children sometimes pass on the wish for them to have certain vegetables or fruit at home as well yeah. and so it can actually really influence the whole family and then as as the child gets older um, I think teaching about nutrients in food yeah, and how different foods have different nutrients and, and how those nutrients help us be healthful and what healthfulness allows us to sort of to do um, that's I think that would be a much better place to start than teaching kids early about calories in yeah. foods um, if later on calories are a unit of energy uh, and energy is within food and so teaching students that is really important because otherwise well at some point I would have needed to have known that and you know yeah. it's, it's helpful from my side as, a, as an academic um, but teaching it more in a physics chemistry way about how energy is transferred and that uh, the energy balance in humans complies with the first law of thermodynamics that energy can't be made or destroyed. It can just be transferred from one place to yeah. another and looking at sort of the physics bio and the biochemistry about nutrients and how it works within, within the body um, and helps us with various different things. I think that would be a much better way to introduce it than talking about calories and weight. Um, because that uh, we, we know the, the calorie content on foods and, and on menus so far and just out having knowledge about that isn't uh, guaranteed at all to, to help us. Uh, I hate having the calories on my, my menu. That spoils the whole experience of going out. Yeah, I know people that are, are, are very similar to you. There's, so it's because it's very new, the research is still ongoing to work out how impactful it's, it's been. Um, I, if I were to hazard a guess, which is obviously just, just my thoughts, but I would think that it would have the potential to impact a, very, a small percentage of people with eating disorders um, in, a in a negative yeah. way um, and maybe exercise disorders uh, as well. Um, and it could benefit some people, but I would suggest that it's likely going to benefit the um, the already well <laughs> yeah. and those who want to get uh, even healthier or be even more conscious about what yeah. they're eating and when than potentially the sector of our population that this is aimed to try to support, maybe people uh, who, who have overweight and, and obesity. And uh, I don't think it will impact that uh, population as it's intended to. And uh, I also know a group of people who um, this is not this is not wrong. This is just an observation that they want to go out and uh, maximize their bang for their buck. They want as lower <laughs> cost spent for the highest amount of calories mm. consumed because, well, gets you more. Why? Why yeah. would I have an 11 yeah. pound? salad when I could have a four pound extra large breakfast um, yeah. with, and with an extra butter slab for free you know yeah. so um, yeah I think that the jury's out on that we'll see what it, happens <laughs> yeah I mean it is like you say it is worrying that it's going to have a detrimental effect to those that do suffer with eating disorders and exercise issues and body composition the kids now have so much pressure on them to look a certain way with social media that they, personally I don't like having the calories because it does make me think oh better not have that one yeah but I do worry that it's going to have a detrimental effect on yeah. some of our <clears throat> other um, groups of people um yeah, yeah. Uh, just to add on to that as well that a um it, when you're in the public health sphere one really difficult thing to try to work out is the level of risk you're happy to take for an intervention that is looking to be sort of quite population wide in regard to the negative impacts it will have on on some people. And the question that you have to try and ask yourself is how how many people who have a negative impact in relation to this intervention 
and what to what severity is that impact um which what amount are you happy with what so if, if 90 percent of the population uh returned or, or um got to a weight that was and a, and a position yeah. in their health that was healthy because of that intervention but 10 percent had a really negative impact from it yeah to what extent are you happy with that you know and and how even if it goes down to one person being negatively impacted you've got to you've got to at some point make a decision and it's not easy it's not easy to to do um and we see that with the you know the the, the covid vaccinations that we've had so many people who have been benefited by the covid vaccinations and as with all vaccines and all medical treatments there's there's some people who have some side effects to it um and that's the same with all all drugs we have that we see that on the same with all foods as well you yeah. know do we do we stop selling peanuts because of people having peanut allergies yeah. um, do we ban peanuts completely from all environments and so i just i'm not trying to create a i'm not trying to say that there's a a, a solution to this that specifically but it's a really difficult area to think about when you're putting in public health interventions to work out the level that you're actually happy to have negative impact on yeah it's it's a it's a minefield i think <laughs> yes yeah, uh, trying to do yeah. my best within it to, to help the, the aim the overall aim is to try to help but to be as specific and targeted as you as you can to a specific problem for specific people in a specific yeah. location because yeah, yeah one size won't won't fit all no. for every problem and even then even as you can be more specific you can't be any more specific than the individual and the individual is probably yeah. the level we need to get to but you haven't got the resource for that or no. the ability to do that and i know as, as, as a teacher you see your kids the students walking around school and they're you know some of them perfectly fine eating what they're eating and then you see others with a can of energy drink and a bag of sweets or yeah. a massive grab <clears throat> bag of crisps and you're just like is this a a cost thing because those things are cheaper or is it just a case of you haven't grown up in a in a situation where you you've been educated and you understand why we need to eat healthier mm. foods and how we make those choices there's some social media as well certainly the maybe these uh, what is it the prime drinks the kids are all going absolutely mental over because there's a couple of influencers. Uh, is it KSI and uh, I'm the one's name now, but a couple of uh, Logan Paul, isn't it? They've brought their own brand of drink out that the kids are going mental for. I know my boys have been on and on and on. Apparently, it's like a gold dust if you manage to get hold of a bottle. Mm. So there's that real social influence there as well now of what kids are, are consuming. What, what's your take on on the energy drink situation, Chris? I, I think overall. We have a real problem with the energy drink situation, personally. I think when you see a young child uh, having a, a, a can of Monster for breakfast um, yeah. oh. or Aid's first thing in the day, I think that is one of the that's one of the mo most um, the most the saddest thing for me is is yeah. seeing that um, because you know how how did we get to that mm. point um, and. It, I, I, yeah, I am. A, I get a little bit sort of like, oh, how, how do we then try and un, unpick this? Like, what what is the reason? As you sort of say, is it is it just a cost thing? But then you've got social media that's very difficult to control. Yeah. And what extent do you control people's social media? And then, well, what about the, the people's peers? You know, it just becomes yeah. popular amongst a group, and you need you don't want to be on the out group and say, no, I'm going to have my raw carrots and raw cucumber. <laughs> uh, you know, which. I had on the way home from school, but that didn't <laughs> that didn't yeah. mean that I uh, also didn't have sweets and and and, and pizzas and, and chocolate. Which I still See, do. I'd I'd be that person because the smell of some of them turns my stomach. I'd be like, I'll just stick with my water, thanks. Yeah, I might splash it out and have a diet cool drink, but generally water, thank you very much. Can't stand the smell. Yeah, it's very strange. But, yeah, uh, to, to a Red Bull or a, or a Monster, um, I, I don't, I, I, I don't no. like. But then, but I'm, but I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not the everyday person. You know, I'm yeah. not the people who, and we need, to, we really need to try and get a grip on, on that. Um, as for, as for, you know, things like Prime 
Um, I don't know it that well as a, as a product, to be honest. Um, uh, to what I can see, as with all of these drinks, there's probably a time and a place for them. Mm. Um, but so if you're recovering after running a oh, however long, let's say half a ma- half a ma- half marathon, um, it's probably not the from the ones that I saw. The prime drinks are 20 calories, and then they have BCAAs and various different electrolytes in them. Um, you might need a bit more than 20 calories after a half marathon, uh, or if you're trying to recover between between sports or any, or, and, and you're looking for optimal performance in, in, in a way where carbohydrate, carbohydrates helps that, then it's, it's not going to be the best uh, solution. Um, but in other, in other times for certain people, certain places, it, it might be all right. It, it, so I'm not against it as a, you know, I'm not against foods in their, in their, in their single entities. It's yeah. when and who and why yeah. it's had and how much it's a choice and a, and, a, and a very targeted choice to have for a particular reason rather than this is just what I have for breakfast or I just have it because it's cool and I don't know what it does to me inside. And I always think food first is the, is the better approach. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 100%. Totally agree. Don't like seeing the, the young people with it in their hand first thing in the morning no i, just, I mean oh. the, the research that so i'll give you to be to to, to have a you know open dis- disclosure um from my from my perspective i'm doing some research at the moment in nurseries and schools looking at whether um children and the staff at these schools are uh, interested and have any room uh, for potential enjoyment uh, for off for having vegetables alongside the kids main breakfast food so when they come for breakfast at nurseries or they come to breakfast club at school and they have toast and they have cereal or whatever it is um, that as well as being offered fruit that there's a little pot of raw carrots cucumber red peppers and the research that we're doing at the moment is um, we we no matter whether they um, ask for it or not we we give that to them and it's their choice as to whether they have yeah. have it or not um, but we do that for a three-week period where every day the kids that come in will get that alongside their breakfast and we haven't got the results yet from the, the schools but from the nurseries where we um we, we worked with nine different nurseries across the east midlands in the uk and uh, we had about 360 children involved and the average sort of take-home stat was that out of the Ten, a ten times a child was offered vegetables. They ate it in. They tried some of it in six of those ten instances, oh, really? which is pretty good for us in terms yeah. of what we were looking to do. And the idea is that veg, vegetables and breakfast time don't go together in the UK. It's not. It's not a thing. But and it's a the, mental thing, isn't it? It's learned. It's all learned. It's yeah. all completely learned. There's no physiological, nutritional, or you know, reason as to why vegetables can't be eaten at breakfast other countries across the world they are you know there's no reason for it it's just learned and that learning is based on culture it's passed down by families it's reinforced Mm. by marketing there's reasons for it but there's genuinely no um real good reason as to why it shouldn't be so you know we're interested as if you expose children to those vegetables at breakfast time for a three-week period afterwards are they do they try more vegetables in a unique sort of individual setting where they'll have vegetables at Mm. breakfast time more after that intervention than beforehand so I mean I'm on the other end of this you know like monster at breakfast (laughs) I'm going for how can we actually get vegetables in at breakfast time so that just hopefully will present uh, how how different an an opinion I am I have with the monsters (laughs) yeah because it's you know you go on holiday France Spain they've all got and, and cold meats and cheese. Yeah. Like, well, I've, I've seen it first. I've recently, okay, okay, I've recently been, well, I'll say half term went over to Egypt. And my 12 year old's quite a picky eater and all inclusive. First morning, he's gone down for breakfast and he's come back with a plate full of cucumber. And I'm like, cucumber for breakfast? That's a bit Love weird. It. And he was like, there's nothing else I like. And he had it every day. He was having cucumber, carrots various fresh meats every morning because he didn't like any of the cereal or all the, the pastries and things just yeah so he went down that route of like yeah it's there i'll try it 
liked it and sort of well maybe it's not too weird to have it for breakfast like you said yeah it is it is just a learnt behavior isn't it that yeah. in in the uk breakfast is cereal or toast yeah or yeah. the fried breakfast yeah. yeah, and this learning that we have, with this learning yeah. we have of a of a food to meal time or even a food to context association, like think about popcorn, where immediately pops up with popcorn of us where you're going to have it. You know, if you say a, a, a roast dinner, what day are you thinking right now that yeah. you would eat that? And that just it happens across our lifetime. We do that for all different reasons, and it's not all unhealthy at all. It it really goes back to our sort of primal survival days of of knowing that a tried and tested um, route to access and ingest food hasn't led to your ultimate demise you haven't there's been no predation you didn't find a berry that killed you so you just keep why why not keep going down that route that you've known compared to going down the path to the left that you haven't been down before you don't know if there's Mm -hmm. going to be berries or honey at the end of it and you could get killed on along the way and so that and that maintains to the present day through our learned routines and behaviors that we stick by them because that's that's what we know has made us survive to this point. But there are benefits to try and changing that up. And um, hopefully, yeah, people will think about vegetables at breakfast, whether it's raw vegetables, whether it's putting it in an omelette, whether grating carrot into a porridge, putting a bit of cinnamon on top and call it sort of like a carrot cake porridge. Um, Interesting concept. Yeah, there's all different ways you can uh, you can do it or blend it into a smoothie um, with spinach and, you know, yeah. There's, there's loads of different ways. It just requires a sort of um, opening up of the mind uh, to thinking it's a possibility and uh, learning that, for example, a holiday context of having cucumber doesn't mean that you can't also have that context at home when you're used to having your, your regular breakfast. Carrot yeah. cake porridge. Yeah. Mm. Try it. Have it a go. I like it. <laughs> Great. I can't leave that one. You can replace you and John's Snickers crumpets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John loves a Snickers crumpet. Crumpets, yeah. peanut butter and Nutella. Haven't tried it. Yeah, I could, yeah. I mean, I'm, I can you do have, it. Um... It's, it's our colleague's post, go-to training snack, isn't yeah. it? After he goes yeah. there for his run in the morning, so he comes back and has. Yeah. yeah. That was tasty. Yeah. So that's all for our sport and nutrition podcast episode. Thank you so much to Chris for joining us. To everyone listening, I hope you found this episode interesting. Don't forget to share the podcast with your colleagues and students. And please get in touch with us if you need any further support. All our contact details and social media channels can be found at ocr.org.uk forward slash contact.